Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Happy Publication Day. Oh, thank you. And actually, we're recording on Publication Day, aren't we? We are. I sent you what I thought was a really great selection of emojis to mark the occasion. It actually it actually dinged in the middle of my interview with Adrian Childs on Five Live. <laughs> I, I hadn't switched off my ding, um, but I was very appreciative of it. I also wanted to congratulate you on such a wonderful book launch party last night. Ah! It was all virtual, of course. What were your highlights? I mean, there was that bit with um, you and that trick you performed with an orange. Yes! Yes! And it's a good thing it was virtual. You usually need a special licence to perform that in a public venue. Uh, I got stuck uh, in the queue for the virtual buffet behind Ed Balls. Wow. And I was so impressed. That man knows how to fill a plate. I know. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? And I think that moment was only eclipsed by the sight of the old band back together. You, Cameron... Clegg, putting your differences aside to celebrate your book launch. We're being quite restrictive about the photos on it, so I'm, I'm grateful to you for not having tweeted about tweeted it out. Yeah, well, you know me, I'm discreet. Yeah. And the same goes for the video I took of the three of you singing that Destiny's Child song. <laughs> Clegg has quite the falsetto, doesn't he? Mm. Who knew? Not me. He's like a castrati. <laughs> I mean... Now, since we last spoke, you did the Table Manners podcast with Jesse Ware. How was that? It was good, actually. I didn't mean to do it in a high voice. Have you listened to it? I have. Not the one with you on it. I tried to have some boundaries. <laughs> it's queued up. It's queued. Uh, yes, queued up. Um, That's what I meant to say. Uh, no, I, I sort of think I'm in love with, um, well, definitely Lenny and Jesse. And you rushed off straight after the podcast last week because you wanted to take them some food from a deli. I was going to take them some rugelach, which is this um, Jewish dessert, but I didn't. the time didn't allow, so I took them a copy of my book. Let me ask you, when you're signing books, do you write the same thing to everyone or do you make it bespoke? No, I think bespoke is good. Don't you think bespoke is good? Steve Martin used to carry business cards that said on them, this certifies that you have had a personal encounter with me and found me warm, polite, intelligent and funny. And then he would autograph them. Maybe I should write that in the books. Yes, steal that. Yeah. Uh, No, it's been... Look, I mean, I think doing these interviews and stuff is is both a sort of privilege and also a, it, it, it's quite gruelling, I would say. Particularly doing it on sort of Zoom is quite dr- gruelling, actually. And why do you think interviews are so different on Zoom? I, I know you find this hard to believe, but I think people... Being in person with people makes quite a big difference. People need people. Don't you think? Yeah. And I suppose it's also me coming back out into the public eye. I mean, putting yourself out there with 100,000 words is quite hard, actually. It's quite a lot of talking about 2015. Yes, the death of Cecil the Lion. I'm sure there was something else too. I do think that is a weird thing about interviews, though. The need to always rake up 
a difficult chapter. I think it's more, I wonder whether it isn't more that the sort of last public definition of me is losing the election in 2015 for most people who are not podcast listeners and don't follow the news that closely. And therefore, the, the, the sort of location question has to start with 2015. And also, I'm doing this in a kind of slightly interesting way as both a frontline Labour politician, but I'm not writing it as a Labour manifesto thing. I'm trying to say, look, here are some interesting ideas. But look, I genuinely mean it when I say, I think I've said this before in previous weeks, but I sort of bears repeating, you know, I'm, it would never have happened without you. It would definitely, if, I, if you hadn't interviewed me in 2015 and asked me whether I had ever done a Mooney. You've, you've always been very slippery on the whole Mooney issue as well. I know. If photographs were to emerge, I wonder what that would do to, uh, to our, to, fundamentally to, to our friendship. To the, and also to questions of truth. <laughs> <laughs> the Mooney question has never satisfactorily been answered. Maybe it could become like the birther movement. People who are obsessed with finding this one picture That's of you. true. Pulling a Mooney that undermines everything you've ever said since 2015. Yeah, that, that, is, that, is a, that is a good... Uh, that... that <laughs> I mean, there is some, what should I call it? Uh, is it Sam is that underground? Underground video, which has never been released of me on a trampoline mm. and us in the Icelandic geothermals. Here's what I think. If you get sales data on the book and it's just there stuck at number two in the bestsellers list. Yeah. Give it a nudge by releasing the video. I think so. I think, I think, I think. I mean, it's not that embarrassing, the geo, the, me and you in the geothermal Absolutely bath, Absolutely not. I think it is a beautiful sight. Two men of a certain age enjoying each other's company in hot water at a northerly latitude. It's what, I think it's what's left to the imagination that is the problem in that, isn't it? That's not a problem. That's what's special about it. It's like a Rorschach test. People see what they want to see. Anyway, I am glad that you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. Sadly, not in a geothermal bath. No. Uh, to tell people about the book. It's fantastic. And for the next few weeks, we are going to be looking in a bit more depth than we have in the past at some of the ideas you write about in the book. Yes. Um, and we thought, you know, given that the podcast was where it all began, um, we thought we would explore some of the big ideas from the book. And this week, we're starting with Better Parental Leave for fathers the, the the first section of the book explores ideas to renew our social contract the things we should be able to expect from being members of society and the responsibilities we owe to one another to make that possible now you, there are lots of ideas about what this might mean and i talk about them in the book a green new deal to create good green jobs across the country and reshape the economy plan to build millions of social homes consider ideas like a universal social inheritance universal basic income that could give everyone either a sum of wealth on reaching adulthood or a basic income. Um, but I also strongly believe that the new social contract also has to have gender equality at its heart. And as we've discussed before on the podcast, so-called use it or lose it father's leave can have a big effect on how the burden of care is shared between men and women. It can reorient the um, priority of family and work in our society uh, you know, I think it's got a huge potential implications and we're going to be asking what it could look like in practice. Um, first, we're talking to long-standing friend of the pod and Icelandic Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir, and she is running for re-election. So it's incredibly nice of her to take time off uh, to talk to us. Iceland is one of the world leaders in parental leave, offering each parent five months of leave when they have a child. We'll be talking to Katrin about that and how it fits with Iceland's broader approach to gender equality. Then we're talking to Jeremy Davis from the Fatherhood Institute and Molly Mayer from the Fawcett Society about the problems with our current approach to fathers leaving the UK and what a better system could look like. And our cheerful person is a former senior advisor to President Obama. You may also know him from the Pod Save the World podcast. He has a new book. It's called After the Fall. It's Ben Rhodes. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My reason to be cheerful is a book. But it's not your book. I feel we've, we've covered that. There's this series of books. I don't know if you come across them. They're called Little People, Big Dreams. I'm holding one up to the Zoom now. And somebody sent a few of these to us for my son's birthday. And the, the label fell off. And I've got no idea who sent them. And I'll be honest, I thought, oh, they look a bit annoying. So it's, it's famous people. This one is David Attenborough. They sent a John Lennon one, a Jane Goodall wow. one, and a Greta Thunberg one. And wow. I thought to myself oh, is, is this more for the parent than it is for the kid? And then I've been reading them to my son and honestly, I have to position myself behind him because I'm just sobbing 
every night as I'm reading them. Explain why. Are they biographies, little biographies? So, yes, they are. They're, they're biographies. So it's basically this series of books that tells in a very simple way the lives of these people who've achieved and accomplished incredible things. And and then it inspires children to think about their lives in that way. Well, that, look, I think it's... I'm quite keen to get these books, actually. They're great. He also wants to invite David Attenborough to his sixth birthday party, so he's, he's going to be in for disappointment then, but it's 11 months away, so I'm kicking it into the long grass. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that it was Daniel's 12th birthday this week, uh, which is a reason to be cheerful in itself, and we got up to various um, hijinks, including we, we're actually out of London and we, we're actually in Stratford-upon-Avon where we did some cycling. Uh-huh. My reason to be cheerful was... Um, that we went to an escape room for Daniel's birthday. Oh. It was me, Justine, and the kids. And you basically have to solve lots of puzzles and clues to get out of the escape room. We, we failed. Um, we had an hour <laughs> and we failed. I mean, the woman, the lady who ran it was very nice. She said, if it's your first time in an escape room, you'd be incredibly well. So you would be, you, you'd still be in there if it wasn't for the employee coming and letting you out? Yeah. Maybe we could give away, as a competition prize, the chance for one of our listeners to be stuck in an escape room with you. What would that be like for them? I imagine at first it would be very exciting, then frustrating. And then they'd never want to speak to me again. Yeah, they'd lose the will to live. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to start by talking to a world leader who is leading the world on this particular issue it's our old friend prime minister of iceland katrine jakobsdottir hello hello nice to hear from you again it's great to see you and congratulations on a very respectable placing in the eurovision song contest and commiserations on being robbed of a victory which which should have been yours you were supporting iceland weren't you jeff very very strongly i had the sweatshirt and everything (laughs) i'm very happy to hear uh, and i'm sorry about the results of the UK, but uh, well, you're used to it, so so I. <laughs> so so we're we're talking about parental leave, and in Iceland, obviously, for a long time we talked about it. When when we came to visit you, you've been a long way ahead of where we are in the UK. Can you tell us where you were, and then give us an idea about the changes that were made at the start of this year? Yeah, I think we spoke together. What was it in 2018 or 2019? Yes. When we spoke last, uh, the parental leave in Iceland was nine months with three months for the mother, three for the father and three for the parents to share. Uh, what has happened since is that uh, we have actually prolonged the leave. So now it's 12 months. It's organized in the way that the mother has six months, the father has six months, but they have a right to use six weeks for the other parent. So what we're trying to achieve is uh, first uh, our goal of gender equality, that both parents take equal part in the upbringing of their children. And secondly, a goal on well-being, that families have more time to share, uh, that we are trying to make it easier for young families to balance uh, their life between work and home with this longer parental leave. And given how far you'd already come on that, was there less resistance to to the changes? Well, I think everybody were in favour of actually having a longer parental leave. Uh, but there were, you know, it was quite heavily debated in the Icelandic parliament. Should the parliament decide how parents share their leave? And I was very firmly uh, in the opinion that, yes, we should do that because it's a political policy that we should ensure gender equality uh, in the legislation of parental leave. And if you have it completely open, uh, there, uh, I, I should consider it very likely that the women should take a, very, uh, a greater deal of the parental leave. But if there is... You know, you could say a guideline with some flexibility because there are six weeks that you can actually give to the other parents. But by doing it this way, we are actually ensuring that the fathers are really participating. Just for our listeners, because it is such a transformation and it's worth underlining this. So 25 years ago in Iceland, Mm -hmm. now you've got essentially four and a half months, more or less, reserved for the father. Yeah. 
uh, which which is non-transferable. Yeah, so, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Twenty-five years ago, it would have been uh, would it been zero or two weeks? Am I right in thinking? I mean, it was it was totally minimal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Just saying, when I when I am born forty-five years ago, the mother had only six weeks, <laughs> and it was only uh, after two thousand that the fathers got some part of the leaf then the leaf had been long so so we have been gradually moving on and i think uh when you look at the um, results that we have been achieving when it comes to gender equality in the last 25 years uh, i can mention two big factors one of them is parental leave and the other factor is uh, early education uh be- because it's very important when the parental leave ends that we have uh, a kindergarten system, a universal early education system that really is for all children. And one thing that really I think is important is to work out the historical roots mm-hmm. of this. What are the sort of social forces that have, or political forces that have driven this? You know, we, we, last time we spoke, we talked about the Icelandic women's strike of 1975. Just for our listeners' benefit, because they'll be thinking, well, we many of them will think we'd like some of what Iceland uh, has, a lot of what Iceland has. How has it come about, do you think? When we think about why, you know, the forces that really put this in motion, that's really, I think, the women's movement, as you mentioned, the solidarity of women's movement and the fact that the women's movement in Iceland has been uh, a very broad political movement. So we have had women from the left, like myself, but we have also had women from the center and the right fighting actually for this issue. But we have also seen, and that's why I think this is a, a, because often politicians are dealing with questions that really don't have an effect on your daily life. But what has happened since the uh, the parental leave was established just after 2000, when we had this ideology of a use it or lose it portion for fathers, because if, you, if they don't use it, it just falls down. What has happened is that we have seen really, it looks like they have changed their attitude and values when it comes to their participation in the upbringing of their children. And do you see that in the amount of leave that fathers are taking, that they're taking what they're entitled to? Yeah, but we have also seen backlashes. And, and for example, after the economic uh, crisis in 2008, when we had, you know, uh, budget cuts in the payments that are made in parental leave, we saw that actually that fewer fathers use their rights to take parental leave. But it has been rising again after we have been raising the payments. It's worth underlining, isn't it, Katrine? It's not just that you've got longer use it or lose it leave, much longer than us. Mm. We have only two weeks paternity leave. But it's also the case that you it's paid at a, is it 70% of your previous salary? Yeah, but there is a limit, you know. Uh, so you, so if, you're, if you have a very high salary, you don't get 70% of that. So there is a limit. And what happened after the economic crisis, that the limit was pretty low. Now that limit has been raised and you get uh, 80% of your salary. And you mentioned this earlier, but Iceland has now topped the global gender um, gender gap index uh, for 12 years running. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying um, that makes, I, I think you kind of walk away with the trophy after 12 years of, uh, of being top of the league. Um, so you don't think we have to do anything more? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not saying that, but I think yeah, I think you've I think you've you know you get to keep the trophy. Um, uh, you know, what's the elements of this parental leave? Um, mm-hmm. Include you know, including for fathers, use it or lose it. Childcare, universal mm-hmm. childcare. Mm-hmm. And what 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 else is is women in politics? Well, I think you know. Gender equality is really a question of structure and that we somehow build structures in society that encourage gender equality. So so I, first and foremost, I'm a fan of that policy that we should make structures, you know, create structures that actually make gender equality uh, a normal part of our existence. And that's why I mentioned parental leave and early education, because this somehow makes it possible for women to take part in the labor market and Iceland has had one of the highest 
percentages of part women female participation in the labor market. So that's definitely also a factor. Women in politics, absolutely. Uh, and but also, and I think we see that in Iceland, you know, we haven't reached gender equality. We still have great problems when it comes to gender-based violence and gender-based harassment. This, this is one of the things that my government has been prioritizing. I think this is one of the key factors in creating an equal, an equal society. And then, of course, we still haven't reached equality when it comes to salaries. Now, you know, as if this wasn't enough, since we last spoke, you've also announced that Iceland is going to prioritize well-being goals alongside GDP in its budget. Mm-hmm. Would you perhaps tell us about your plans on that and where, where you're up to on that? Yeah, this has been an ongoing project, uh, this period. We, we, we began really by, you know, we're actually in a week of cooperation with Scotland, New Zealand, Wales and Finland now. Um, so this is an interesting collaboration. It's it's informal and it's just led by governments who are interested in really thinking about society a little bit differently than just from the uh, rather traditional economic measures. So what we have been doing, first, we actually uh, created indicators. What do we want to measure when we are actually measuring uh, how our society is doing? And obviously, we are still measuring GDP and we are still measuring inflation. But we are also measuring how are we doing when it comes to reducing carbon emissions? How are we doing in uh, securing housing for everybody? And then we decided to have six priorities in our uh, budget planning for the next five years, where we actually are prioritizing six uh, well-being issues, uh, mental health, secure housing again, carbon emissions and, and zero net emissions, really how we are going to achieve that, uh, education, uh, more innovation in our employment and how we are going. And the number six is really more communication between government and the public. Well, look, um, it is always incredibly inspiring uh, to talk to you because of your vision um, and because of uh, what you're doing. We really appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate your kind words uh, about my uh, book, uh, which are on the cover uh, of the book. Uh, Katrin Jakobsdottir, Prime Minister of Iceland, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And as I said, I really enjoyed reading your book. It's important for politicians to really share their experiences like you're doing. So thank you for that. So now to talk about the situation in the UK, including what we can learn from places like Iceland, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jeremy Davis, who is Head of Communications at the Fatherhood Institute, and Molly Mayer, who is Senior Research and Policy Director at the Fawcett Society. Thanks so much both for joining us. Jeremy, let's start with you. Tell us about the Fatherhood Institute, what you do and and why that has led you to campaign for better parental leave for fathers. We are a think tank. We're a very small uh, think tank uh, and we research and promote caring fatherhood and we advocate for father-inclusive family policy. For us, creating a, a fair system of parenting leave is a really important goal because we know that getting men doing lots of hands-on caregiving in their child's first year is the best way for them to build really strong bonds with their babies and close uh, relationships with their children that, that will last a lifetime. And, and we also think that that is really uh, important for reducing gender inequality because if we, if we don't support dads to do the hands-on caregiving, then looking after children is always going to be considered women's work. There's also an element of this that is about giving men access to the amazing experience of that sort of intense uh, looking after children uh, that currently tends to be the almost exclusive preserve of women. And just before I come to Molly, Jeremy, um, tell us a little bit about where our institutions are and how much they are at odds with men's attitudes in the UK and fathers' attitudes. 
Oh, gosh. I mean, I think they're way off. We think of men in this space as, as a kind of spare part. So the, the absence of a, of a father-inclusive parenting leave system fits into a much bigger picture of uh, men really still being uh, pushed out from, from anything to do with uh, looking after children, education and, and so on. What I suppose is interesting is that that would have been the case thirty years ago too, but it would have been ve- would have been matched with very different social attitudes on yeah, the part yeah. of men, and that's yes. what's changed, hasn't it? That's it. I mean, I think you know, at home there's been there's been a revolution uh, over the last over the last few decades, uh, and it's fascinating that that's happened because it's been absolutely at odds with government policy. Molly, let's come to you. Talk, talk to us about the Fawcett Society, and we've had people from the Fawcett Society on before, but talk to us about the Fawcett Society and why you think Father's Leave is important to your work at the Fawcett Society. So the Fawcett Society is the leading membership campaigning organisation in the UK campaigning for gender equality. Um, and really at the core of what we do is we campaign for tackling the gender pay gap. There's many different reasons why the gender pay gap exists. The fact that women are more likely to work part-time, they're more likely to work in in lower-paid sectors, discrimination, but also because um, women are more likely to take long leaves from the labor force. And we know that when mothers take long leave from the labor force, they face the motherhood penalty. And in the UK, when a mother, um, by the time her child is 12, she'll earn on average 33% less than a man will. So, and it makes sense, right? Like if you're taking time out from the workplace, you're missing those important conversations, you're missing training as an employer, even if you're thinking about, do I promote this 28 year old woman or man? Whereas where the woman, she might, you know, she might go and have two kids and she might leave me for two years. And that has economic consequences. So for us, we see, um, we see reserve leave for dads as one of the solutions to tackling the gender wage gap because it will allow fathers, as Jeremy was saying, um, to take on more responsibility. And if it's long enough, it'll help get mothers back to back into the workforce sooner. So let's just sort of break this down a little bit, Molly. Mm-hmm. In 2015, the government introduced something called shared parental leave. Mm-hmm. Can you explain sort of what that is, why it hasn't worked? And just to be clear for our listeners how that's different from the so-called use it or lose it father's leave? Right now we have the system of shared parental leave. And how it works is is that there is 52 weeks of leave that is available. And normally mothers will just go on and take that leave. But they can choose to share it with the father or with the second partner. And any time that the, uh, the second partner or father takes it reduces the amount of time mothers can take. And so what reserve leave instead is there would be a chunk of leave for mothers and a chunk of time for fathers that are separate from each other. And the reason why it's not working right now, um, first of all, is that for a lot of families, it's a non-starter decision. So the TUC did some research in 2015 and they estimated that 40% of families aren't even eligible for it. And that's because if a father is to take it, their partner needs to be in work and not just working, but they need to be an employee. So they can't be self-employed and they need to earn at least 120 pounds a week. And they have to have worked at their workplace for a complicated numbers of about half a year plus 15 weeks before the due date, which is about 41 weeks. Even for those that, okay, you've passed that hurdle, you're both eligible. Now, it's only paid, the first 37 weeks are paid, and it's paid £151 a week, which is half the national living wage. And again, that's just not possible for a lot of families because it goes back to the end of the gender wage gap that if fathers are more likely to earn more money, and then when you think, okay, whose salary can I afford to give up? It is often the mother's salary because she often earns less. But then this creates this really vicious cycle that because the mother took leave, it contributes to the gender wage gap. Um, and then even if you're okay with that, uh, if, you're, if you're able to afford it 
and you're eligible, then um, you have this issue of any, again, any time the father takes, the mom can't take. So for many mothers, they need the full year. Childbirth can be a traumatic experience for some. It can mean they might need to recover for a long time. Um, and it also contributes this idea that this leave is for mums and contributes this social norm, as Jeremy was talking about, that fathers are just a second parent. And the system hasn't worked and it's the take-up is... I think this came from an answer to a parliamentary question that I put in actually recently um, in my with my other hat on as um, Shadow Business Secretary. It's something like 3%, m- yes. more or less. The government doesn't actually officially fess up to it, but it's something like 3%. Yeah, I don't think they gave you a very clear answer on that, but um, around 3 4%. And then and that's of eligible fathers too. So that's not even including the ineligible ones. Before we spoke to you, we spoke to Katrine, in, and it's just incredible what they've been able to achieve in Iceland over the past 20, uh, 20 odd years. What, what can we learn, not just in terms of what a policy might look like, but in terms of bringing people along and, uh, and the kind of results they've had over there? What can we learn from countries like Iceland? There are various elements that uh, we can see have worked in Scandinavia. Uh, one is that it's important for the leave to be well paid because if it's not well paid, people can't afford to take it. That sounds really obvious, but it's really important. So the pay is important. It's also important that there are pieces of leave earmarked for each individual parent, as Molly was saying. And crucially, it's done on a use-it-or-lose-it basis. So if the father doesn't take it, it's gone. It's not that uh, the mother can take it on his behalf or vice versa. And also you need to, to close the differential, I think, between what, what's available to mothers and what's available to fathers, because, you know, if you look at what we have in the UK, at the mo- it's like the biggest gap, I think, in the developed world. It's like 50, you know, mothers can take 52 weeks off. And fathers, in terms of their individual entitlement, fathers only get two weeks. So, I mean, what does that say to everybody? It, I mean, it, you couldn't shout it any louder, could you, that, you know, looking after babies is women's work. And Molly, let's talk about Canada. Um, listeners mm-hmm. might have noticed from your accent there's a, there's a hint of uh, Canadian yeah. in, in there. Uh, tell us about the experience of Quebec and, uh, yeah. and, and what that shows about whether use it or lose it works. So I am from Canada. I'm not from Quebec. I'm from the province to the side, so Ontario. But in uh, I went to university there, and while I was there, I was studying what was happening. So um, in 2006... Um, the, Quebec introduced five weeks of use it or lose it leave, paid at 70 to 75% of um, father's income. And in the rest of the country, there was a, a system really similar to shared parental leave. So there was 52 weeks available for parents to take, and any time that fathers took, it took it away from what the mothers could take. So I did a study with um, a university supervisor looking at whether the reserve leave for dads actually made a difference. And what we found was that Yes. In Quebec, 85% of fathers took paid leave compared to 20% in the rest of the country. Wow. So it works, right? Like it, they, they took it up. And then because of the success of this, um, now can the rest of the country does have five weeks of reserve leave for dads. And I think it's just really, it shows that, you know, when it's there, dads will take it. And I think it kind of goes with the way we were saying at the beginning of that, I think that we have this idea that that dads don't want don't want to do this and that they're and we always are talking about how do we encourage more dads to take leave and what can we do and it's having the systems having these proper systems in place it shows that it makes a difference now katrine was really clear that this policy in iceland um it's it's important that it sits alongside uh, a number of other policies to promote gender equality. What kind of policies do you think we need to sit along something like this here in the UK for both um, equality at home and at work? We need to have an affordable, good quality early years education system. So right now in the UK, parents um, pay the second highest rates for early years education in the world. And so what that means 
is that for so many families, it's a choice between do you work or do you send your kids to childcare? And then going back to what we've already just talked about, again, because moms are likely to earn less and because they're ones that have probably already spent the year at home, they're the ones that are going to drop out of the labor market. So again, these are all contributing factors uh, to the existence of the gender wage gap. Jeremy, on, on this thing about men's attitudes, fathers' attitudes, you at the Fatherhood Institute, you've recently published research into what we've seen during lockdown. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit uh, about that, the experience of the last year or so of the pandemic. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, we published um, our study called Lockdown Fathers, The Untold Story. We wanted to find out what happened in terms of their relationships with their children and and uh, what they were doing at home and so on. And so what we discovered was that uh, they spent a lot more time with their children. Uh, they did a lot more caregiving, uh, a lot more housework, a lot of uh, work on supporting their children's learning and development and so on. And when we asked them about uh, what would they like to see happening in future? Three quarters of them said that they would like to work more flexibly in future. 60 plus percent said that they would like to do more homeworking. And so out of that, we are creating a campaign called Time with Dad, which is aiming to open up a space where we can get parents and employers and the education system in a kind of virtual room together to try to work out how we can keep this increased time and increased involvement that fathers have had. And it's, it's increased, it's, it's still far from equality. That's true, that's true. Let, let's ask you about the Jeffocracy. Uh, Jeff's the benign dictator, so he claims implementing some of the ideas from my um, book and some of the ideas uh, that we've talked about today. What's your sort of number one ask for, for, for him? I'll, we'll, we'll give you each, each an ask. Molly? So what I would say is we want uh, a reform shared parental leave system that introduces uh, at least three months of paid leave that is use it or lose it for fathers so that it's only theirs and it is well paid at, at least at the national living wage for uh, so that we can are able to encourage fathers to take leave. I'm going to say exactly the same. I'm well gonna, coordinated. I'm going <laughs> to agree with that 100. Yes. And I, and I'm, not, I'm the only, the only other thing I'm going to add is I want paternity leave to be available for self-employed dads too, and and for that leave to be paid at a, a decent rate as well. Just mention that on the on the self-employed at the moment, just so people know that the system for them at the moment is even worse than the system for employed dads. Self-employed dads get nothing. So, the, so there is a uh, uh, for maternity leave. There is a a, a sort of um, a kind of safety net for self-employed uh, mothers, but that doesn't exist for paternity leave. So, if you're self-employed and you want to take any time off, you're doing it on your own time. And if people like what they've heard, perhaps you can also each tell us uh, what they can do to be part of campaigns to make it happen. Uh, Molly, let's start with you. Well, I think generally we need to see action from the government on this. Uh, we are waiting and waiting and waiting for the employment bill to come out. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen or even if something this will be included in it. But I think letting um, letting your MPs know that this is something that we are we are looking for and also as well uh, at Foster Society we are always we are always encouraging people to become members uh, to support the work that we do and campaign on our work we have lots of amazing local groups that go out and do grass grassroots campaigns to uh, raise issues in their local communities as well as these bigger picture uh, issues across the nation. If you want to get involved in the Time with Dad campaign, you can find uh, information about that on the Fatherhood Institute website or on social media You'll if you use the hashtag Time with Dad. Um, and for that, we're, lo we're really looking for anybody who's got ideas or motivation 
to trial new approaches. It's about kind of uh, learning from, from the last year or so and trying to translate it into micro actions. Well, look, Jeremy Davis, Molly Mayer, you've been on message, but not just on message. You've been um, brilliant at explaining the current system, how it needs to change. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Well, I would say that was a good way to kick off our post-book podcast, wasn't it? It was. Do you not just feel with this subject, it's not if, it's when. It just has to be the direction that things move in. I found um, the, the part of it that I'd not given that much thought to was the stuff that Jeremy was saying about the experience of being a father and how enriching that is for an individual and for society. I was lucky enough to be able to sort of make some changes in in my life around the time my son was born, which has given me very much the kind of experience he's uh, he's talking about. Um, I, I do wonder, I mean, I would love to think that men in general, you know, myself included, have come as far as he suggests that we have. But I think there's probably still a bit of way to go on that as well. I'm sure that's true. And that's a really good point. I mean, I'm really intrigued by what you say about the direction of travel. It has to. It has to. I mean, yeah. do you not feel like this is like living in 1910 or something, waiting waiting for the research to go into what would become the beverage report? There's a head of steam in this direction, and it's it's just going to happen. We're going to see countries doing it, um, whether we're a leader or not, who knows? But this this just feels like it has to happen. I am quite struck. I think I think a coalition, and there is, we should say that there is a coalition involving the TUC and others campaigning on this issue. There is a sort of a growing coalition making this case, and so, and I suppose it goes to this wider question, isn't doesn't it? Of you know, it's that it's that thing about I sort of say this in the book. Sorry to quote the book, but it's obviously on my mind. Is you know, change seems impossible until it happens. You know what I mean? I don't think I quite put it as well as that in the book, but you know, uh, you know, it's sort of it's this weird thing, isn't it? That you think, well, that that seems outlandish. That does not outlandish, but that just seems like is it ever going to happen? And then, and then, sort of. But I think there's a point at which the status quo seems outlandish, and how is this still happening? And it just changes. And I think we're going to get to that point. And do you think we're at? Do you think we're near that point about the status quo seeming outlandish? I mean, it is true that when the government has to sort of defend the, you know, they have the intention of fathers being able to take more than two weeks off and so on but you've got a shared parental leave system that's got you know single digits low single digits take up i mean presumably you can't sort of conclude it's all going tickety-boo and let's just carry on i mean just to underline this point i mean there is a real issue not just about the leave but the pay i mean you know the 150 something quid a week Mm. is you know it's two weeks but it's but but it's also it's just incredibly low and also after six weeks for mothers, now some employers give more. It is also 150-something quid a week. You know, it is worth underlining, we're not just bad for paternity leave. We're also very low down the, the league when it comes to actual paid leave for mothers, the, the level yeah. of pay, not not the amount of time. So, And, and that means it isn't really sort of practical for lots of mothers to, to take the time off they'd like to take. So, you know, plus then you get into childcare and so on. So... There's a whole. I don't, I'm not trying to sort of overload this with like say there's all these things, but I mean there's a whole suite of things here that need to be acted upon. You've made me quite cheerful actually by saying that. I, I think maybe you're right that it isn't a. You're sort of saying it's going to change this. Yeah, we? we're, we're going to we're going to see that change in our lifetime definitely. In our lifetime, oh. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we're still in our youth, Ed. Okay, let's 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 settle on that. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm delighted to say that now in our cheerful person slot, we're joined by Ben Rhodes, former senior advisor to President Obama and author of the new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm glad to be cheerful here. Let's start, um, because it'll be interesting for our listeners. Talk to our listeners about what your role was with President Obama and how you came to do that before we get on to the to the book. Yeah, I mean, the quick version is um, I had been kind of propelled into a career in, in foreign policy and speech writing after, the, after witnessing the 9-11 attacks. And uh, I went to work on the Obama campaign as a 29-year-old in 2007 with no idea precisely where that would lead. Um, and for eight years in the White House, I was a deputy national security advisor, but I was something of a kind of utility player advisor. I, I drafted speeches. I oversaw our communications on, on foreign policy issues. Um, I was part of the National Security Council. And is it like, you know, when you hear the, uh, the, the astronauts who were part of the moon landing, they say the rest of their lives, it's people saying, oh, what, but what was it like? Like you can answer that question. Is it the same thing with having worked for Obama? It is. I mean, I think especially because, I mean, it, I, I compare it a bit to being like a professional athlete. <laughs> you're retired by the time you're 40 and then you're talking about it, um, which, of course, I hope I have other things that, that I do in my life. But I mean, I think especially for me, um, you know, I wasn't I didn't set out to be, you know, the deputy national security advisor. I, I went to work as a young person, basically, on a political campaign. Um, and, you know, I describe it as being the oldest guy in the room when I was 29 in our Chicago campaign office, we kind of caught lightning in a bottle in that campaign. Um, and it became this kind of global cultural moment, um, the 08 Obama campaign. And when you go through something like that, you know, um, you, you never have time to digest it. And then you're kind of plopped down in the middle of the White House. And then for eight years, because I was there January 20th, the day Obama's inaugurated, um, and I left um, January 20th, the day Trump was inaugurated and actually flew with Obama. Every president gets a final flight on Air Force One. So this, I flew on this massive plane with about 10 people um, to drop off the Obamas in California um, and, and realized on the flight back that, that I had not had any time <laughs> over the previous decade to process, digest, step out of myself and think about this insane set of experiences that had happened to me. And and it's really interesting for me, particularly reading the book um, after the fall, because I'll come on to the political arguments you make in it. But, you know, I had this period of being leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still processing it um, uh, six years on. Talk to us a little bit about that reintegrating into the normal world, if you, do, if you don't mind, and how how you found that. Well, I think for anybody, um, leaving a position of enormous stress, responsibility is challenging. And, and actually, I remember on that last uh, flight home on Air Force One that the, the military assistant to the president, the guy who carries around you know, the nuclear codes, was on the flight with me. And he said to me, you're going to have a real problem, a reentry problem. Um, and he compared it to his his experience coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I said, no, 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 come on. I wasn't like at war here, man. And he's like, no, no, you weren't obviously in, in that kind of situation, but you've been running on stress, adrenaline, nerves, you know, for years, and your, your body's going to kind of just drain of that. But for me, Ed, that's weird under normal circumstances. Um, being replaced by people who believe the opposite of what you do, who are intent on destroying everything that you worked on. And so not only did I lose that kind of uh, position, I lived in a country that kind of lost a sense of reality. And, and, and that was very <laughs> disorienting. So that takes us to the, to the, to the central political argument of the book. T tell us in your own words, you know, because I think it's important to hear it from you, how you would describe the central case you're making in the book. So the central case I'm making, I, I, I think it might help people to, to realize how I kind of walked into this um, idea. I was, I was traveling a lot, and I found that, that things made more sense in America when looked at from abroad. It's like when you're in a dysfunctional you know, family situation and you, you, you have to talk to people outside <laughs> to understand what's happening. Um, 
And I remember I was talking to a Hungarian anti-corruption activist, so someone who's in the opposition to Viktor Orban, difficult circumstances, obviously. And I was like, well, tell me what happened in your country. How did Viktor Orban take this country from being basically a democracy to being an autocracy in, in a decade? And he said, oh, it's easy. There was a right-wing populist backlash to the financial crisis that helped Orban get elected. Then he redrew the parliamentary districts. Uh, he established a network of wealthy cronies who he enriched through corruption, who then financed his politics. They bought up the media and turned the media into kind of a right-wing propaganda enterprise and machine. They packed the courts uh, in Hungary with right-wing judges who would find favor uh, with Orban's uh, power grabs. Uh, and they wrapped the whole thing up in a nationalist us versus them message in which there were the real Hungarians, Orban and his people. And then there was the other, you know, and the other could be defined as immigrants, as liberal elites, as Muslims, as, as George Soros. And he's talking and I'm thinking, well, he just described what's happened in the United States the last 10 years. You know? um, and so I thought I would kind of interrogate the different strains of nationalist authoritarianism around the world. And I ended up talking to, to people in Hungary, to people like Alexei Navalny in Russia, to Hong Kong protesters. I talked to, uh, to Brits and, and, and people um, working in politics in different places. And the basic theory is that you know, the, the same strain is happening everywhere of nationalist authoritarianism. I think acutely of the right wing variety, far right. Um, and that is kind of a logical endpoint of the last 30 years. You know, I realized that this is when I looked at why these things had happened in these different places, basically American globalization, American led kind of capitalism without any guardrails on it had kind of destroyed people's sense of, of fairness in the system globally and, and, and led them in looking for some form of traditional identity in many ways, what I didn't like about the world was in part a reflection of 30 years of, of an American-led order. Talk to us about China, because one of the fascinating parts of your book is, is sort of in the second half, you talk a lot about China and yeah. sort of, you know, what you intuit about the situation in China and how we should view China. Just say something about, about, about that. Well, I think, I think, first of all, we have to recognize the, the potency and power of the, the model that China is creating, this authoritarian model that has become more assertive at home and abroad, but that if you take, I mean, and part of what I say is that like the, the Chinese Communist Party of today is kind of an American partial creation in the sense that if you take American capitalism, technology obsession, and national security obsession, and then you just strip out all the democracy, you kind of get this, this massive growing uh, Chinese government that is kind of the successor, if, if Americans were the successors to Brits, and leading the world order, like the Chinese appear poised to take the next step. It's a kind of a, a techno-totalitarianism that, that is a potential future for us in the world, um, given where technology is going. And what does this mean for the conduct of foreign policy then? I mean, what, what does the argument in your book more broadly mean for the conduct of, well, the conduct of our societies and the conduct of foreign policy, if that's not too enormous a question? Well, I think it has, I mean, huge implications for both. Um, I mean, the short answer is at home, I think it means really tending to our own democracies. And we have a lot of work to do in the United States to make sure that the people can vote, to make sure that the system isn't corrupted. Um, but in our foreign policy, you know, I, I think it has a, a lot of consequences. I mean, first of all, um, I think the United States needs to actually prioritize its values. If I was China looking at the United States the last 30 years, I would think that human rights came in a distant, I don't know what number, to security interests, to trade interests. Um, so I think elevating the interest that we apply to human rights, which requires, and this is a second point to the foreign policy, far greater consistency from the United States on how we think and act on these issues. And in your role now, uh, you, one of the things you do, you're co-chair of uh, National Security Action, which is a political NGO. Do you have the ear of the people in the Biden administration doing your old job? Because it's, it's, it's a funny old thing. You kind of learn on the job. You gain this wisdom in the job yeah. and, and then you're out. So you're able to sort of say, having been there, this is what I kind of learned the hard way and slowly. Yeah. And I mean, they're all friends of mine because it's really, you know, largely the, the same people. <laughs> but I... I said to them, look, you know, I'm going to be, uh, you know, give me a call if you ever want to talk these things through. 
I'm going to be obviously rooting for you guys. But at times I'm going to press in part because there are issues where I wish that we'd been pressed more on the outside from a progressive direction. And the the other thing that occupies your time, which I guess would preclude going uh, into government, is is you are now part of the crooked media empire. You're a co-host of Pod Save the World. We we went some years ago to see Pod Save America in in London, and it was mm-hmm. like Beatlemania in reverse. Yeah. People people went nuts for it. I mean, obviously the pandemic uh, has probably meant you can't be out there doing live shows and meeting people as yeah. much. But have you had a taste of that? Of that? Oh mania? yeah. Yes, and and here's and this is uh, and I was thinking when I was coming on the show, like this is my number one reason to be cheerful, not not just this, you know, Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. It's that you know I found that um, there are a lot of people around the world, particularly young people, and, and I, I, they sense intuitively like this is something's gone wrong, and I want to get more involved. But then they look at the media and they look at politics, and they don't usually find people who are speaking a language they understand or who are trying to kind of create that solidarity across different interest groups and communities and around the world. That's what Pod Save America and Pod Save the World tapped into was people are looking to be part of communities that, that, are, that push back. I mean, what I find in traveling and going to those live shows and meeting people who listen to these podcasts is part of what just hearing people explaining things to them in a way that makes some sense to them is empowering because you know, it makes you realize that you've not gone insane. Like this really is uh, like, this is pretty crazy, you know, and, and we want to do something about it. People want to get involved. And, and that to me is the, the number one reason uh, to, to be optimistic. Well, look, that's a great note to um, end on podcasters of the world unite. Um, <laughs> you have nothing to gain, but listeners, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Ben Rhodes, uh, the book, we, we highly recommend the book. Um, it's a really fascinating uh, read. It's after the fall being American in the world we've made. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right, we're in the outro and we'd, we'd love to hear from people about the book, uh, people who've read the book. You can find us on cheerfulpodcast.com and you can email in. If there's things in the book that you'd like to ask about uh, AMA, if there are uh, topics that you'd like to see covered in more depth on this podcast that are in the book or topics that are not in the book, if you're a new listener who's come to the podcast uh, through the book, we'd love to hear from you too. We read all the emails and we really love to hear from people, don't we, Jeff? Absolutely. And just, just on the subject of the book, you know the first thing I did when I got my copy? Looked yourself up in the index. Exactly, yes. And uh, I, was, I was quite pleased on balance because I was mentioned more times than Ronald Reagan, Tony Blair and the Great Manure Crisis. The same number of times as Greta Thunberg, uh, but less than Constitution. So I, I thought that felt about right on balance. You're more important to me than the Great Manure Crisis. That's the loveliest thing you've ever said to me. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. I'd like to thank our guests... Katrine Jacobs Dottie is so nice of her to drop by at Molly Mayer and Jeremy Davis and thank you to our cheerful person author of the new book After the Fall Ben Rhodes I love talking to anybody from that kind of high octane White House environment how, how do you think you would fare in that environment? Um, do you have a West Wing character you most closely relate to? Good question I'm not allowed to say Bartlett, obviously. But, I mean, everyone wants to be Bartlett. But John Spencer was fantastic, wasn't he? Mm, Leo. Mm. Uh, Sam Seaborn? Um, what about you? Who do you relate to on the West Wing? Oh, who was that reporter who looked a bit like that? Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Go, <laughs> Danny Concannon. Yes, that, that was me. That you was are me. Danny Concannon. That is absolutely yes. uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Very similar was, colouring. He was a bit more scraggly than you, but that is only a little. Uh, that, <laughs> that is uncanny. I mean, it's either that or Mike Harding. <laughs> Please stop bringing that up. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All our research and guests are found by the marvellous Joel Pierce. Joel is backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents head seed, composed music, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's gone big. He stayed home. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.